This is Sustainable-ish with me, Jen Gale, and it is great to have you here. Listen in each week and I hope I can brighten up your day and leave you feeling inspired and excited about the magnificent human being that you are and the power that you have to create a better world. You won't find any expectations of eco-warrior perfection here. There's no obligatory tree hugging. You won't be judged if you drive a car, wear leather shoes, or eat the odd pack of Haribo every now and then. I'll be sharing my own gems of wisdom for sustainable-ish living, and I also relentlessly scour the internet for people doing amazing things to tackle the big environmental issues that we're facing, and I hound them until they agree to come on and inspire us all with their fabulousness and the positive change that they're making. So sit back, listen in, and get ready to change the world one baby step at a time. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Sustainable-ish podcast. It's marvellous to have you here as ever. How are you doing? Did you enjoy last week's episode with Steve Shaw from Power for People? Have you written to your MP yet about the local electricity bill? I've written to mine. I have yet to have a reply. And it's been wonderful to be tagged in on loads of social media posts and actually have people emailing me to say that they've also got in touch with their MPs, which is absolutely marvellous. So if you haven't already, please do, please go back and listen to that episode. Have a look at the show notes on there. All the information is on there. It really doesn't have to take a lot of time or be too difficult. Um, But this is a really important bill that would really help to transform the sort of renewable landscapes within the UK. So please do go and do that. And thank you so much to those of you who already have. It's been amazing to see. So on with today's episode. There is a lot of information out there, isn't there? On the internet, on the radio, in our newspapers, on the telly box. And alongside a lot of information, there are a hell of a lot of opinions as well, aren't there? About absolutely everything, including climatey stuff. So, how do we know who to trust? How can we tell when we're reading what is essentially an opinion piece from a journalist or a publication with a particular agenda? And what is actual climate science and facts and the important stuff that we need to know and understand? It's hard, right? So that's why it was great to chat to Jack Marley, the environment and energy editor of The Conversation in this episode of the podcast. The Conversation is an online publication with the tagline, Academic Rigor, Journalistic Flair. There's a tagline for you. And they provide a platform for scientists to share their peer-reviewed research findings with a wider, more mainstream audience than your average scientific publication might normally get. It uh, says on the website that it aims to rebuild trust in journalism, which is um, possibly a, a big ask maybe at the moment, as an independent source of news analysis and informed comment written by academic experts. I can't even say academic. Academic experts. Jack and I chat about all kinds of things in this episode, frequently both diving off on tangents and to all sorts of different things. But I think that's often how the best conversations, no pun intended, happen. So enjoy this one. Take care. Have a great week. And I will catch you next time. Hello, Jack. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Great to have you here. Let's kick off like we normally do. Can you introduce yourself? 
Yeah, of course. So um, I'm Jack Marley. I'm one of the environment and energy editors at The Conversation, which is a, a website which publishes news and analysis uh, from academic experts. Excellent. <laughs> so we'll post a link to that in the um, in the show notes. What's your what's your background then? How did you get involved um, with The Conversation? Uh, well, I didn't really have a lot of experience uh, in the media before I joined The Conversation, but I, I did an internship at a website called Manga Bay in 2018, which was like a re- like a reporter's internship where they basically asked me to they give me like a few assignments and um, publish them on the website. And then uh, the next summer, I applied for an internship at the Conversation just to sort of as an editorial assistant. Mm-hmm. And happily, they they asked me to stay um, and and join the the environment section as as an editor. And so I've been here for the last. Uh, four years nearly okay and and is your your background prior to that in sustainability and environmental stuff or is this just yeah yeah I did I did marine biology at university and um I've always just always um loved nature and animals and plants I think it's Mm. I think that's what was my way when I was a kid I was obsessed with insects and bugs and and the weather and stuff so I've always just had a love and for this sort of thing yeah so you mentioned that the conversation, I can't remember how you phrased it, something about academic-led. What's the what's the phrase you used? Uh, I think I said we're a website that publishes news and analysis written by academic experts. So okay. um, I guess we're quite unique in the news um, because most stories you read, especially if it's an environment story, like the kind of stuff I work on, will be written by a professional journalist who will quote academics he'll interview them he or she sorry will interview them and um that's basically your interaction with with academia in the news whereas we get the academic themselves to write the story right and and my job as the journalist is just to sort of edit it so that it's accessible and engaging for as many different readers as possible basically and so um this might sound like a really um silly question but why is that important well it's 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 a good uh, it's a good question and it's something that we we kind of talk about a lot when it when we're trying to sort of reach out to academics about why they should write for the media it's always beneficial to have people who know what they're talking about in the news yes. I guess is the, is the simplest answer um, because the way I guess we think of it is that academics are specialists and they are some of the most trusted voices in the world on partic- very particular subjects. Mm-hmm. They aren't generalists like journalists are. They can't write about a vast array of topics in in sort of uh, in you know a basic am- amount of um, detail. They really mm-hmm. they really burrow into very specific things, and so they are the perfect people to speak to whenever that specific thing is in the news. And so um, really, they are the people we should be listening to, whether it's you know COVID nineteen or mm. climate change. Uh, and so to have them front and center, you know, delivering their expertise and, and their analysis of a situation they've spent, you know, years studying, I think is a really sort of valuable um, resource for, for readers to, to be able to get to grips with a subject that's, you know, that is based on evidence, I guess, mm. which I guess is, is something that you can't really take for granted in a lot of in a lot of the media. Yeah. And do you find any difficulty in, you know, writing for an academic uh, paper or a journal or you know writing something for for scientific publication is quite different um to writing something for sort of public consumption and I sometimes wonder if you know we've had a some of the difficulty with communicating client stuff has been around kind of 
how we, you know, the, the communicating that science and how we make it feel accessible and understandable for everybody and whether that's been one of the things that maybe we haven't done quite so well do you find that is that a sort of difficult bridge almost for for um your academics and I guess your role is probably part of that isn't it yeah so do you mean is it difficult for academics to sort of make that transition from from well I guess I guess for you to sort of um you know to take to take what they're saying and all their expertise and all their knowledge and be able to sort of guide them maybe to how they can make that you know do, do they have to sort of reframe or rewrite or whatever that the, what they want to say to make it more accessible totally yeah I mean like you get into especially if you've studied a subject for as long mm. as, as as many academics have you get into such a rigid way of, of thinking about it or talking about it to others because more often than not you're talking about it to people within your academic field who already mm. know it in the same detail as, amount of detail as you and so yes. you're using words and you're using sort of turns of phrase and you know acronyms that are very familiar to other academics but which mean absolutely nothing yes. to members of the general public and so and so they're really it is quite a difficult process and, and quite often I, you know, I've worked with academics for the first time who have, have had a very rigid way of talking about their subject and, it, mm. and it's you know it's very kind of difficult and dense for for the average person to understand. I mean, in, in, for me to understand, like I, mm. you know, I, I only have really like a, um, uh, a, a, I haven't, I haven't gone, I haven't done a PhD for yeah, instance sure. or, or, or above. So I don't know anything in the amount of detail that mm. some of the other things I work with, but yeah. So if it doesn't make sense to me, then it certainly yes. isn't going to make sense to, to the average reader. So I guess the way I like to think of it is that um, rather than asking the, the, the writer to, to, to just write another way you know to sort of swap one form of writing for another I asked them to try and find their own voice and their mm-hmm. own way of communicating their expertise that is still true to their their understanding of the topic and and how they want to express it but it is just sort of pitched at a level that you know their friend in the pub yes. their family yeah, yeah, yeah. member who has never really studied their subject beyond school can really understand and really relate to and really care about I guess and really think wow that's that's important or that's cool or whatever so it's it's a that's kind of the the task really and, and for the most part it's it's very rewarding I've worked with loads of people who have you know started off in their first article with you know a lot of doc sort of academic phrases mm-hmm. and they've really kind of been quite quite hard to coax them out of writing as if they're writing an abstract for us mm, yes and in the end, you know, several articles later, they're, they're brilliant. They re- require very little editing. Yes. They, they produce really kind of punchy and exciting pitches. And they've even been offered, you know, from other journalists elsewhere in the media, other yeah. editors to, to write something for them. So they've, it's a real journey that you see a lot of academics go on. And that's really nice, I think. And I think that bit you said there about, you know, having a conversation with your mate down the pub or whatever and talking about or, or you know, how do we get people to care about this? And maybe, again, this is another issue that we've had with science in that scientists are very very good at communicating the facts but actually we know that what people connect with is stories and feelings and um you know that isn't kind of where scientists tend to go is it so again I guess there's there's an element of that isn't there of, of how we can encourage academics and scientists to tap in a bit more into those um those feelings and that kind of um you know these these are the facts but this is why we need to care this is the you know this is the the emotion behind it I guess yeah no you're exactly right I think that um I think that breaking down that barrier between sort of facts you know you know hard hard Mm. sort of statistics and sort of 
the emotional resonance of, of the of the subject at hand is is it's it's a matter of talking to to people and to members mm. of the public and in finding out what does the average person already know about this subject yes. and what and what what is it that kind of um drives their interests in it mm-hmm. if i was to sort of you know stop a friend and and ask if you know i could talk about my research and what i found what are the things that cause their face to light up or yes. for them to ask additional questions when i mention it i think that that helps find the, the root of the, the the really kind of the stuff that's really important to people on a, on a very emotional a very basic level yeah that, that kind of helps them connect to a really big sort of complicated and you know very usually very number heavy story yes and and yeah connect on a very basic emotional level um i think that that's basically the best the way of kind of um finding a way forward when it comes to trying to sort of um because people want really like well-researched and well-evident stories that you know backed up by by credible uh, Uh research and sources and that have loads of really good sort of stats that help to articulate and illustrate the problem and in a lot of loose like like um make it really lucid Mm -hmm. and and sort of uh you know tangible but at the same time they they also they need to care enough to read past the first paragraph and Mm -hmm. i think that like combining the two really is a matter of like basically finding out from the reader you know what are they interested in what do they already know Mm. about i think that the key to pretty much all good writing is to know your audience i think is to know why am i writing this and and to whom am i writing it i guess Mm. and i think you know especially with climate stuff more and more stuff that i read suggests that you know it isn't that we're lacking in the facts it's that we're uh, you know it's not it's not facts that will change people's minds when we're talking about changing behaviors it's that it's the the sort of the feelings behind it that feeling of being part of something of um, of knowing kind of what to do and how that's going to add to your um to your life and all those sorts of things so it's it's sometimes a a tricky kind of line to to walk isn't it i talk a lot to my audience about you know the importance of having climate conversations and lots of people feel like they need to have loads of facts and stats at their hands and they're worried someone's going to come and sort of come back at them and, and query them about a fact and things but actually that human to human interaction that um you know focusing on feelings and all that sort of thing um often results in much I was gonna say better conversations maybe it's better conversations healthier conversations more yeah. um, impactful conversations maybe absolutely I think I think that's spot on I think that like one of the things that I think we can sometimes get lost when it, with when it comes to talking about the alternatives or talking about carbon footprints and how you can do your bit and how you can reduce this or how you can make a change to your lifestyle here that will make sure you are responsible for less emissions and stuff. One thing I think we forget about is that um, all of this seems so abstract yes. and it, and, and by, because it is because it seems mm. abstract because it's like, oh, the, you know, so many grams of CO2 are yeah. associated with this option yeah. Yeah, versus this option. And it, it seems so abstract. It seems so unreal. Mm. And it's above all, it seems kind of like dull. And yeah. and I think that like one of the things that I've discovered through this job is that um, some of the more exciting stuff when it comes to uh, engaging people with with climate change is really trying to find out from people what they value in life mm. that they live now. What is it about life that really is worth living to them? What is it, what are the things that they really, you know, that makes getting out of bed in the morning, you know, a joy or, or having you know it's something at the end of the day to look forward to. Mm. And I think more often than not, people realize it isn't having. The, the luxuries that are considered sort of the things that people just couldn't mm. live without. It's quite often things that are quite hard to define or, you know, they're, 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 that it's based in sort of like the communal feeling of working yeah. together on something or having like a, um, 
a relationship with a close friend and being able to share with them what you're feeling. And I think that one of the, the kind of unexplored areas, you know, when it c- comes to research, but also just in engaging people with climate change is, you know, what does a good life look like in the future mm. with climate change? If we accept that, you know, the, the, the things we became used to over the last few decades, whether it's, you know, multiple international um, long haul flights and, and sort of fruit and vegetables flown from around the world. Mm-hmm. Those kind of things. Is it that or is it really, you know, the, the visions of like uh, uh, of being able to enjoy more free time in the company yeah. of friends, having to do less work that's, that's bad for the planet mm. uh, and more leisure time spent, you know, learning a new skill or enjoying a good book. I think these are things that are all intrinsically low carbon. They don't they don't yeah. really contribute to the problem. In fact, they they actually encourage lifestyle changes that are mutually um they they reinforce, you know what I mean? That that yeah. they have positive multiplier effect. And I think that um I think that that's like a really interesting thing that um you can talk to people about and they can envisage envisage a future with, you know, more free time and and, and more beautiful public spaces and and you know, wildlife and stuff like that, in more wild uh, yeah. green spaces. And they can think, that sounds good. I like that. And it's far more it's far more compelling than, well, if you just choose this or buy this mm. instead, you'll save this percent of a... Yes, percent. yeah. And I think very often, you know, climate communication and especially thinking about the future is, uh, is around um, a lack, isn't it? It's around scarcity. Mm. It's around not having those flights, not having all that food available all the way around, all the year round, all those sorts of things. And actually trying to think about, um, and this is something I'll be doing with my audience, you know, well, what's what's your vision for 2030 for your, like, for your house? How are you going to heat it? What's it going to look like? Is it going to be cheaper to heat it, warmer to heat it? What's it going to look like when you go down into town? How are you going to get into town? Where are you going to have your job? And really sort of thinking about that positive thing and what are the things that we want more of rather than you know, this defensive, oh my God, someone's going to come and take all these things away from me. Yeah, exactly. That's it. I couldn't have put it better. That's the, that's the, that's the, 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 the problem with so much climate, well, communication about climate change is, uh, you know, here's what you will lose. Here's what you must do without. And no, that's true. There are lots of things we're going to have to get used to, to living differently. But I think that the, the joy and the, 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 the potential for, for new forms of, contentment Mm. are totally unexplored and totally like just absent from the discussion Uh, and and just sort of a real honest discussion about how much of this stuff do we really even need and how much of it actually gives us joy or fulfillment you know with our really high carbon sort of um lifestyles like how much of it really nourishes us in in a really like lasting way yeah and I think we've all, you know, we've all read those reports that say, you know, household income has risen since since the Second World War, but actually, you know, mental health issues have increased and happiness hasn't increased. And we can all kind of understand that and relate to it and say, oh, yes, yes, yes. But actually, in terms of joining the dots and thinking right now, what does that actually mean about my life and, and the things that I value? Because I think I've read things before talking about this sort of values action gap that we have a set of values where maybe we all like to think we believe in fairness and we believe in justice and we believe in we will want to create a brighter future. But then there's a big difference between the actions that we're carrying out that we're just a lot of the time doing on autopilot because we're knackered and we're busy and society tells us that this is what we should be doing. Yeah, that's yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that, that sort of describes like an average day, doesn't it? Like mm. You're kind of bombarded, you know, as the days go by with worse and worse news that kind of impress upon you how serious the situation is and how much things need to change but from all sides you're kind of 
occupied by by things that sort of divert your attention to the very mm. the very immediate you know things yes. that need to be done right now because you need to be able to put food on the table yeah, you need yeah. to be able to do you know keep your house going you need to and i think those it, it, that kind of disconnect is is really kind of like i guess demobilizing it makes mm, you feel just is, like you're yeah. powerless and that and that the world is slowly getting worse around you and there's nothing you can do about it and i think um I think that's the state in which a lot of people live. And I think that yes. if if we are to kind of lecture people about, well, you know, if you just did this and you should be doing that, it's a kind of, again, it's like, I think people people feel like quite rightly that they are, they're being told to make do with less every day and in, in that like, and, and to sort of accept or, or, or be reminded of, of how, you know, bad things are. And I mm. think some people understandably just want comfort or a distraction. And yeah, I think yeah, that yeah. like, it kind of makes sense why that is the the most common outcome of these sort of things where people want people understand that that there's something wrong and they and they would prefer something different but it's like well they don't feel like there's they don't know what to do or or, or how it would make any difference mm. so having said that you know so much climate stuff is is doom and gloom and you know that that's not particularly motivating one of the things i wanted to ask you about was the latest ipcc report that came out um as we were recording this i think it came out last week Mm. So just to really go back to basics for people, as you say, you know, we, we sort of um, even the non-academics amongst us, we talk about a lot of acronyms and, and um, you know, things like that. So what is what is the IPCC? So the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is uh, it's convened by the United Nations. It's a, it's basically the world's like foremost authority on climate change. It's composed of this particular report. I think was there was like 270 Wow. Scientists uh, and researchers who are responsible for writing this particular report. But actually, it, in the past and in, in, in um, you know, previous reports, it's, it's, um, it's thousands of scientists around the mm. world who are involved in drafting this uh, kind of synthesis of the latest scientific understanding regarding climate change. So they're taking all of the research and reports and academic journals and things that, that have been done and, and pulling it together to then produce a document that summarizes it essentially is that right yeah exactly it is basically the um the the most recent synthesis of the most credible and and sort of significant science on each aspect of the the climate crisis um in each uh, installment like different reports tend to be focused on different aspects Mm -hmm. in 2018 there was the 1.5 degree celsius report which is is being kind of one of the most sort of famous it Mm. kind of birthed that line about us having 12 years to avert climate catastrophe and all that and i think that um subsequent reports have dealt with like the role of land land use like farming and uh forests and stuff in in, in the carbon cycle and and in climate change and this report was um by working group two of the ipcc uh and this this report was was specifically about what the science both natural and social is telling us about the the likely impacts of climate change this century mm. as well as the what it suggests is necessary to adapt to them um and, and how much of it can really be adapted to based on different sort of uh, trajectories of warming yeah and it, it talks about um i think in the the sort of headline of or you know the title of the report it took i think it says impact adaptation and mitigation now i think we can all understand impact but maybe and certainly I start to get a bit confused when we talk about adaptation and mitigation and what the difference is between those two yeah yeah again it is quite a kind of a technical it's technical language 
but essentially adaptation is is concerned with measures that we can take to to adapt to the changes that are already baked in. So we know now that climate change is, 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 is not just inevitable in the future, but it's also it's happening right now. It has happened. It will continue to happen. So adaptation um, is really all about the things that we can do or different people all around the world can do to, to continue and maintain somewhat of a decent standard of life with the understanding that, you know, our environment has been in some ways irreversibly changed certainly on human lifetimes by climate change. So that might be something if we're to bring it down to an individual level, um, just trying to think of an example, that might be like fitting an aircon into your office or your house so that you're more able to carry on doing what you want to do at a reasonable temperature. Is that kind of adaptation? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So let's think of it in those terms. Yeah, like so if you're a farmer as well, um, one of the ways you might adapt to climate change is to plant new crops, more yeah. drought, drought tolerant crops, to grow a greater variety of crops in order to like lower the risk of any one of those crops mm. failing as a result of a drought or, you know, intense rainfall or something, because that's what the, you know, that's the impacts that we know are kind of yeah. coming is that more extreme weather, you know, more wildfires, more floods, more droughts, more intense and more, more frequent. And uh, yeah, if you're on a national scale, you, you might, if you're a country that's sort of in the tropics, that is, is likely to sort of see some of the worst effects of climate change, whether it's, you know, really extreme heat that people struggle to survive in, mm -hmm. or if it's like more intense sort of tropical storms, then the way you might, your country might adapt to climate change is it might choose to, to build more sea walls, which could help sort yeah. of ease the onslaught of rising sea levels. Another way the country might adapt uh, to climate change is you might improve sort of your healthcare systems to to you know greater capacity for mm. for, for the future to ensure that um, you're able to weather some of the um, some of the the increases in diseases yeah. and other things that are expected as a result of climate change. Yeah, I mean the other thing is like housing and stuff like that. As you say, you, you might the on a national scale you might want to re renovate homes to make them. Uh, more resistant to sort of like massive changes in temperature mm -hmm. to make them cooler in, in, in the summer and, and also uh yeah so yeah air con and stuff like that in, in uh as well and then mitigation what's the how does that differ from adaptation so mitigation uh in the climate in the context of climate change really refers to reducing emissions so if you imagine that climate change is a problem that only gets worse the longer we don't do anything mm. mitigation is basically how we make that problem smaller in the long term right. we, we however bad climate change gets we can mitigate it today by reducing emissions so okay. we make the problem smaller over time by by mitigating it essentially so so examples of countries mitigating um climate change are as you'd expect closing like coal-fired power plants mm. building more cycling and walking mm -hmm. uh, infrastructure to replace cars and, and other sort of internal combustion engine vehicles yeah mitigating the problem is just cutting emissions basically. anything we can do to reduce emissions yeah, yeah brilliant exactly. that's that's um, made it much more understandable for me so um i think you said before we hit record that there's an article in the conversation i think about sort of five key points or five key messages five key takeaways from the ipcc report obviously uh, putting you to the test here can you can you give us some some of those takeaways or because you know it's a massive long document I don't think any any ordinary member of the public is going to trawl through it I had a go at looking at the sort of is it a 36 page summary um, mm. but even then there's still a lot of 
and, and I know it's designed, that summary is designed to be accessible for sort of anybody to read, but there's, you know, there's quite a lot of footnotes and quite a lot of um, scientific jargon and things. So what what are the main headlines of it? You're right that it is, it is like a sprawling, like every IPCC report you could pour over, you know, mm. in single paragraphs and, and it would, there'd be a lot to, to get into. But um, suffice it to say that the, the report basically told us that the impact of climate change. So I think I sketched out a few before when I talked about, you know, mounting storms, droughts, mm. floods, sea level rise. You know, these impacts are um, at this stage that they are basically irreversible. So we're locked into some pretty significant climate change this century, no matter what we do now. I think that's that's just sorry just to interrupt, but that's one of the I can't remember whether I read this or where I but this idea that for, for my kids now, this is the best, this is the most settled the climate will be. And that's yeah. just mind blowing, isn't it? That it's an awful this is thought. as good as it gets for them. Essentially, yeah. I mean the the other thing is that not to sort of go off a tangent, but the buildings we live in, the the bridges we drive on, these were all built in an earlier climate. Mm. The climate that those those that infrastructure was built in and designed for we're basically leaving that climate behind oh, where yeah. we're going into uncharted territory. And so the world that we knew even just a few decades ago is basically gone and we're, we're going somewhere different. Uh, and you're absolutely right. You know, I don't doubt for a second that summer 2022 will be another record breaker in many parts of the world for heat. Mm-hmm. It may even be, you know, it might be again, one of the, one of the hottest years on record as you know, we, we've had lots of record breaking years for heat in just the last decade. It is almost certain to be, one of the very coolest yeah. um if not the coolest of the rest of my life yeah and so that's that's a that's a scary thought and uh, and basically what the report says in in no uncertain terms is that it is very the, the, how scary climate change is how bad the impacts are really do depend on where you live and where you fit you and your country and your region and, and your community fit in sort of the global economic system um so the 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 report basically uh, found that about half of the world's population, it's between 3.3 and 3.6 billion people, live in places that are highly vulnerable to climate change. And so those places will see really devastating impacts of climate change over the next few decades. And the report also said that the, the narrow window of opportunity mm-hmm. we, we have to, to really um, to prevent the very worst effects of climate change and to, to secure a future that is livable, and that is actually mm. what the text says, to secure a future that is livable for all is rapidly closing. Mm. So we have a very you know, limited window of opportunity to act here, but that opportunity is, is diminishing, basically. Yeah. And you know, one of the other things that we wanted to talk about was um, sort of climate misinformation, I guess. And it feels super relevant at the moment with this I want to say it in air quotes, sort of reopening of a debate around net zero that seems to largely be stirred up in the British press by the likes of Nigel Farage and and people like that. But, you know, this idea that just last week we had this IPCC report that didn't get the coverage it probably would otherwise have done because of the horrendous situation in in Ukraine. And, and, you know, I think even when the Ukraine environment minister or something said, didn't he, that, you know, he was... Um, really concerned that the situation there was was overshadowing this sort of really important report and the um, things that we need to be paying attention to. And then now we're having this whole debate that, you know, that's told us that we need to move away as quickly as possible from fossil fuels. And now we're having this debate about reopening 
oil fields and gas fields to try and transition away from any reliance on Russian fossil fuels when it feels like what we need to be doing is running as fast as we can towards renewables that would give us a win-win on on so many levels. But there is a lot of very persuasive rhetoric, I guess, out there, isn't there, that that kind of muddies what shouldn't be muddied water at all. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's a few things to, to pick up on there. And I think um, the war in Ukraine has... Um, for good reason, dominated yeah. a lot of the news in the last month. Um, but what I guess was probably why the, that Ukrainian scientist was so exasperated was probably because we can't really lose sight of the bigger picture here mm. in that like what's happening in the Ukraine is is part of, of the, the entire problem that climate change is part of as well. Mm. Like we are kind of spiraling into a, a more dangerous world. Mm. And a lot of it is because of because of things like fossil fuels because of um the consequences of you know conflicts over resources and and for um the the way which you know large sections of well sort of small but very powerful parts of the of the of the global population have mm. um became very rich mm. my perspective or my feeling that that you know these people have used this money that they've garnered from fossil fuels to mm. buy influence in other governments and into policy and that kind of thing that then yeah. serves their own purposes yeah uh, absolutely i think that like a lot of this is quite naked really especially the um the stuff about net zero i mean this this comes back to the kind of the work we do with the conversation when we say that it really is beneficial to have people who know what they're talking mm. about writing the news or you know like writing their sort of their analysis of the news when you have columnists in you know right-wing papers or you know who are kind of friendly with the tory party mm-hmm. or who who are you know in, in, have close links and can put pressure on people in government to, to sort of uh, sway policy decisions and stuff when we have people like that who you know can can turn any situation to 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 say how it suits how it shows their agenda is right yes how... i mean essentially it's, it becomes an opinion piece and, it, and they're they're you know that whole there's not there a, a saying about you know statistics can mean whatever you want them to mean so they're yeah. kind of taking a, a statistic and, and skewing it to fit their own as you say their own agenda yeah absolutely and i think that there's been a slew of stories at the minute about how the net zero how boris johnson's net zero strategy or net zero plan is is a bad idea and how you know uh we should um focus more on and having like a secure supply of yeah. of fossil fuels and stuff that we can we we can exploit at home and all these kind of things so totally divorced from the fact that you know even the government acknowledges that there isn't really any future in in sort of shale yeah. gas for instance in the uk and that the north sea fossil fuel industry is really there isn't really much yeah. prospect for growth there anytime soon any sort of rational you know analysis of the situation would say well you know we have massive potential for, for generating renewable energy in the uk mm. specifically especially with wind and that you know if you have an energy system and, and, and a whole economy really that is sort of less reliant on fossil fuels and and more um supported by um yeah homegrown sources of mm. renewable energy and if you have you know housing that is well insulated and energy efficient and leads mm. and needs you less energy anyway and leaves people less sort of like uh, exposed to the volatile um gas prices as a result of the war on ukraine or like um diminishing global reserves and stuff like that if you have that kind of sustainable energy system that doesn't really that isn't sort of like dictated to by you know 
international relations and yeah, yeah. you know what one country is doing to to sort of interfere with the price of gas and and, and all that kind of thing if you have energy that's that can that is you know uh that is renewable and, and, yeah. and sort of uh, um pray to that kind of um malignant influence then you're always going to be better off and i don't know if i'm just being naive here but you know if, if we're looking at like immediate sort of I don't know, short, you know, next couple of years type thing, the quickest way to reduce our dependence on Russian oil and gas would surely be solar and wind because they're so much quicker and easier to kind of get set up and going because I'm not I'm not um, a geophysicist or anything like that. But I would imagine that, you know, starting starting a fracking site or starting a a new oil field is probably going to take a little while and require a huge amount of spending and infrastructure and all those sorts of things. Exactly. I mean, it, it is it is sort of uh, it, it is pretty ridiculous when you consider how cheap renewables are mm. as well. well. Isn't onshore wind the cheapest form of energy available in the UK? Yeah. And I mean, it's only just recently that the, the government has actually sort of said that, OK, we're not going to do everything we can possible to prevent people from building onshore wind farms, which is what they have effectively mm-hmm. been doing since David Cameron was prime minister. They finally just this week talked about changing the planning system so that it it it, it sort of encourages rather than penalizes anyone mm. who wants to try and build an onshore wind farm. And yeah, our cheapest source of what well, at least one of our cheapest sources of energy. And it, it, it like renewables have became that cheap with surprisingly little support. Yes, really. Um, and <laughs> yeah. when you consider how much support we give to to, to fossil well, fuel how much like exploration, are still being subsidized. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And you consider how cheap and, and sort of um, convenient a lot of renewable energy is yeah. versus that. It's kind of astounding that we've let this go on for so long. Just to quickly ask a couple of um, potentially basic questions again. Um, yes, of course. Net zero, that term in itself, I think we've all heard it probably don't really understand it i'm not sure i could explain it to my mother-in-law what what does that mean with good reason it's the net zero i think as a concept was always supposed to be a bit vague Mm -hmm. because it is quite convenient in that it it doesn't specify when exactly we will no longer be burning fossil fuels or when exactly uh, emissions will will be totally eliminated and it's essentially net zero if you think of it like a balance book net zero would be a point at which our emissions of greenhouse gases are entirely offset by the amount that we absorb and sort of sequester. Uh-huh. So um, reaching net zero is basically a matter of phasing out the burning of coal, oil and gas uh, and, other, and other sources of, of greenhouse gas emissions like CO2 and ensuring anything that we still emit is more than sort of mopped up and absorbed by, uh-huh. you know, expanding na- ecosystems like forests and wetlands uh-huh. or by industrial means like carbon capture and storage uh-huh. technology, for instance. A lot of the, the that technology, uh, carbon removal um, technology that we kind of talk about or that scientists sort of gesture to is pretty, um, is, is basically non-existent at the scale mm. that it's, it needs to be in order to actually be meaningful. And so mm. net zero is is an intentionally vague term and it's, it's, it's understandable how a lot of people kind of are a bit bamboozled by it because it, mm. it doesn't really, it tries to solve the problem without ever really committing to actually a specific moratorium on 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 the on the problem itself which is essentially fossil fuels but the government has a has a net zero plan mm-hmm. and is it are we still net zero by 2050 is that the goal for the uk yeah um and the the uk government received a lot of sort of praise in 2019 when it, they first committed to that they were one of the first countries in the world to set a net zero date 
Um, but but I mean, as we've seen in the intervening years, it's a, it's very easy to to make an announcement like that. It's easy to set a date. It's very hard to hit it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. and it, and it, I think that that's almost unhelpful as well to say that we'll be net zero by twenty fifty because thirty years seems and justifiably mm. is a long time, and and there is no net zero strategy on earth that will work if you assume that we'll be able to, you know. On we'll December wait till 2048 and then we'll do yeah. our homework last minute, a bit like me studying for exams, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Hopefully by then we'll have invented something yeah. that will sort we'll the problem for us. carry on and then someone will have invented something that can download all this information I need yep. into my head and I'll be able to pass my exams. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's just that's the kind of thinking that it encourages because what net zero by 2050 kind of intentionally obscures is that there is a massive effort needed in just this decade to put mm. us on track for that. Uh, we basically need to halve emissions this decade and, and we're nowhere near on track for that. And but aren't they st- they're still going up, aren't they? Yeah, they are yeah. still going up and we're on track to, to massively overshoot. Um, yeah. We're, we're, gonna, we're on track at the moment to, to emit more than, than we've reduced this decade, which would put us absolutely miles off course for net zero yeah. by 2050. And I guess um, that leads us on to kind of the, the story that you introduced at the beginning, this this sort of how net zero is a dangerous trap and the, the mm. problem of misinformation. I'm just curious, I'm just sort of conscious that I, I've kind of led us away from talking about misinformation at very different times. The conversation partnered with um, some academics to research the sort of influence of uh, misinformation. I mean, it's a, it's a bit like... Um you know, there's an awful lot of fake and still having, having conversations with my teenage kids around, you know, fake news and how do you tell when something's from a reliable source? And, you know, it's exactly that same kind of thing, isn't it? Because we, we might read something in the paper and it's very, sounds very reasonable and very believable and um, actually, but it's just some person's opinion that they're yeah. taking the stats that they want. So yeah, what kind of misinformation is out there, I guess, as a start? So what kind of misinformation, I guess, is, is a pretty good question because there was a study out in, I think it was either the last year or 2020, which uh, it was led by some academics at the University of Cardiff. And they, they described what they call the, de- the, the discourses of delay, which they say mm. there are these new sort of strands of climate, climate change denialism that you'll, you'll sort of see emerging in the press and online that don't really repeat kind of the more obvious forms of the past. You know, in the past, people would say, oh, climate change is just a theory. Scientists aren't sure. They haven't made mm. their mind up. You won't really hear that anymore. Pretty much nobody will say that climate change isn't happening. Mm-hmm. Everyone with, with a pair of eyes can see that climate change mm. is happening. But what you will still see, which serves to basically serves the same function, are these kind of arguments which delay any doing anything about climate change rather than deny it's happening. Mm-hmm. And so that can be stuff like, oh, well, it's pointless. What The, the UK shouldn't really do anything because uh, there's loads of emissions coming from countries what like China. What about China? Yeah, exactly. This is like this classic delay tactic of just saying that, you know, anything we do is insignificant and therefore we shouldn't really bother doing mm. anything. That's, a, that's sort of a really common refrain that you're likely to find. And also, I mean, that that plays out on an individual level as well. Do you know, I, I will say people have people say to me, well, what's the point in me? Um, I don't know, we're talking about waste or something when actually, you know, I see John next door putting his bin out every week and it's absolutely overflowing. What's the point in me doing anything? And it's kind of the same, you know, it's a, it's a microscopic bit of, of, of this thing that we're seeing played out internationally as well, isn't it? And I just yeah. think, well, I can't control what John does, but I can control what I do. And in the same way, you know, we, we, can have maybe have a little bit of influence on China, but very minuscule, I would imagine. Um, but we can control what we do as the UK and to be sort of setting appropriate goals and targets and taking action. Absolutely. And we actually, um, I think what's quite heartening, it, it also for a researcher we've also worked with at Cardiff University, 
uh, a lot of his research, uh, a guy called Steve Westlake, he um, he looks at sort of the influence of, of individual behavioral changes that you've just described there, mm. whether it's, you know, recycling more or cycling to work and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, these things seem insignificant. And maybe in the grand scheme of the problem, like the arithmetic of climate change, which is, you know, emissions into the atmosphere versus, mm. you know, out, it might be insignificant or it might be negligible, however you want to call it. But your your decisions influence others in a way yeah. that you probably often don't realize and yes. uh, his research has shown quite quite conclusively that you know even small things like that can really have a pretty profound impact on on how other people yeah. uh, see the problem and their place in it so you should never really put it's never just down you and... is it it's never just you taking that one action it's the people oh, that no. see you doing it you know um I talk about walking to school or cycling to school and then suddenly someone's like oh actually well you live near me so maybe I could walk or maybe I could cycle and um it's it's you know and then talking about the changes that you've made and the um oh we were walking to school this morning and we happened to see blah or it was lovely and sunny and those benefits you get as well and I, and actually it was you know my child actually talks to me when we're walking to school instead of yeah. being you know buried on an iPad or something like that it's it's all the important stuff isn't it and it comes back to what we said at the start about, you know, the, the ways that doing without when it comes to like some of the really high emissions, uh, affluent lifestyles that people like a lot of people, particularly like rich, well, richer, more affluent people in the UK enjoy the, the, the really like there's a lot which proportionally on a global scale are some are people with some of the most uh, the, the, the highest emissions overall mm, mm. Um, in, in the US and in the UK and other wealthy countries. Um, the, the kind of lifestyles that are consider, considered the sort of the, the, the standard that every every person in the world should aspire to. This is the, the good life. This is what you need to have, you know, more than one car, multiple holidays a year, mm-hmm. all these kind of things. That kind of idea, I think, as a lot of people find when they try things like giving up, you know, like say cycling to work, walking and stuff and getting more fresh air, going out in nature and, and instead of like, you know, the more sort of like convenience, mm-hmm. the, the modern conveniences we used to. Uh, the, people find that actually there's, there's there's these new new pleasures that are far more fulfilling and nourishing that mm. they weren't aware of, and so I think that basically my my take on it is that we we have a lot more to to explore when it comes to um into into how everyone can enjoy a better, more fulfilling life, I guess within within the planet's uh, boundaries, and that doesn't entail it certainly doesn't entail uh, a lower quality of life for, mm. for you know the most affluent it, i think it can in many ways it's a, a more pleasant life really yeah. but anyway i, I guess yeah, I, I know I, we keep going I, off on a tangent don't we so this this misinformation and the the, the climate sort of uh, delaying tactics i think you said so this kind of well no point us doing anything because what about china what about india yeah. what are what are other sort of arguments that we might hear so other forms of um Guys, I guess climate delay arguments you might encounter are, are stuff like, oh, it's it's far too late to do anything. Uh, oh, wow. There's no point, um, which is a really grim thing for anyone to say, mm. because if it's far too late to make a difference, then like, why even bother getting yeah, up? Why are you getting morning? up? Yeah. yeah, what's the point? And, and, it, and it's absolutely wrong, of course, because even this in this new adaptation report that I mentioned at the beginning, even though it does sound very scary when you talk about this narrowing window of opportunity, what it basically is saying that, you know, things are already bad we've already left it too late to really Mm. prevent you know really bad things happening but every fraction of a degree matters and everything we do anything we do the sooner we do it the earlier we do it the 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 better we make the situation essentially Mm. so it is it is never too late and it is now is always a good time to start basically and what about arguments about cost and money and you know oh that's that's going to be too expensive to do that whereas i think reports and things that i've seen say that actually you know 
when we were talking about a recovery from COVID, you know, that a green recovery and a, a transition to a green economy and making sure we've got a fair transition and things actually creates more jobs in the medium to longer term, but that we hear this very persuasive argument from, you know, maybe even kind of local governments and stuff that are really stretched that it, well, it's too expensive to do that at the moment. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Um, and it is, it's an, it's an argument that's been proven wrong a lot of times, but it still crops up. Um, a lot of it is because it's this very sort of blatant misinformation, like we say, from um, quite, you know, powerful sectors mm. of society that don't really like the idea of us um, transitioning from fossil fuels or really putting into to place the, the big changes that we need to make because it would entail you know a fundamental restructuring of how society works and, and mm. it and it would be destabilizing for a lot of the sort of the lot of the the interests the, well a lot of the the, the people and, and sort of organizations who have made a lot of wealth off the the mm. current status quo and that's kind of intentionally vague because it is we could get into it but, but basically <laughs> but, it, but it is kind we of don't want to be sued yeah exactly it, it, but it is it, it, it has you know and, and, and any economist will tell you that um it's really absolute nonsense to talk about net zero or uh, decarbonization measures as a cost because they really are an investment that, that more than pays itself off. Mm. And really, the, the entire argument is, is totally turned on its head when, you, when you, you, know, you read this IPCC report and you realize how significant the damage of, well, the of doing of nothing inaction. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the cost yeah. of inaction. You couldn't even calculate no. it in, 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 in economic terms that would, be, that would make sense or, or yeah. would have any precedent in the in the past it is something completely th- to do nothing about climate change would be so dis- disruptive and destructive to to even just the you know the economic system we have now and, and to the people and and to the, the people who really benefit from the economic system we have now it's such a huge sort of change that we're kind of bringing about that really um it's the, the question of whether it's too expensive to do anything about it is is really just a, a nonsense question i suppose mm. how does the media in air quotes um what's what's their role in countering because they are responsible for you know spreading some of this misinformation and so so what's the media's role and i guess then what's what's our role as um consumers of the media as individuals in in countering that as well it helps maybe to kind of try and understand what what the situation is like now Mm. i think that like because it is such a, a big and complex subject like climate change, like anything else, misinformation is not something that's always done in, you know, with nefariously or with, with, with sort of an agenda in mind. But um, it's, it's a problem that can, they can travel quite far simply because mo- most people aren't really trained in, in, in sort of how to spot misinformation when they mm. encounter it online. It's not something that we're ever sort of prepared for or really kind of, receive a lot of sort of information on i mean like i said research that we we commissioned uh, working with academics we found that about half of consumers in the uk just had no idea how often they encountered misinformation online so how often how often would we be well i don't know it, it really depends on the kind of the, the the sources of news you follow the kind of people you saw that's the of. thing I, i'm so aware that you know my twitter is 180 degrees opposite to somebody else's twitter feed who you know has different political views and things to me but exactly. that we both take each of those feeds as the truth yeah the pursuit of any sort of definitive truth is is inherently difficult and maybe mm. even you know it, it, to, to ever have one version of the truth that's absolutely 
it, it, it depends on a lot of things and, it, and it's almost it almost I think kind of misses the point yeah it's difficult to really say uh you know because it is it is contingent on lots of things and perspectives and uh, uh when it comes to something like climate change there are some things that we can uncontroversially say is true best to the 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 mm-hmm. ability of you know the world scientists and there's a lot that we can say is obviously you know drivel that's produced by people who have a vested interest mm. in, in, in in not doing anything about climate change so when it comes to misinformation we know that it's not just climate change that it's a problem with it's low kinds of subjects you know we saw that particularly during the pandemic with COVID-19 mm. where you know really sort of harebrained sort of theories about vaccines and stuff were able to proliferate mainly because you know p- people have I guess um the kind of public trust uh, and the credibility in journalists has really been eroded over time. Um, you know, uh, there's been numerous scandals over the years that have really kind of tested people's sort of like mm. faith in journalism, but also like public bodies and and, and sort of the public sphere more generally. I guess. Do you think there's there's something around that you know in situations like the pandemic or when we're talking about something like climate change, there there is a lot of fear, and when we're scared, we want certainty. And so, you know, and, and as sure as we are with the science around climate, it's taken a long time for the scientists to come out and say we are absolutely unequivocally sure that, you know, this is the situation and this is human caused and that sort of thing. Whereas the people who are um, because scientists are always aware that science is an ongoing process of discovery um, and so don't necessarily like to deal in definites and um, things. Whereas the people who are sort of peddling misinformation are quite happy to come out and really confidently say, no, this is the case. Yeah. Do you think that that sort of plays into that? Because we want that surety and that definitive answer, whereas so much of of science and life is all these different shades of grey and, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Because any any rational person would understand that like life is never really as simple as, as, you know, as it might appear superficially and that, you know, things are complicated and, and all the rest of it. I think, you know, people understand these things. And, and so, and, and therefore, the scientific sort of method and its sort of conclusions about the world, I think people can can understand why they're they're not why scientists aren't able to say anything with a hundred percent certainty. I think people understand that, and and it's kind of like it's okay that that's the case. People would would expect that just in the same way that they're not they you know they've been surprised in the past, and you know people can kind of understand why there is that kind of like uh, impartiality or, or or sort of like hesitance and stuff. Doesn't doesn't do very well on social media though, does it? When social media has no space for nuance and no space. But exactly. For, yeah. But communication strategy, as you say, is all about leaving sort of no room for doubt mm. or, or, or very constructive doubt and trying to sort of like give people a very sort of um yeah, a really sort of easy, really digestible and mm-hmm. uh really sort of yeah, really really kind of neutered version of the truth that's 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 sort of reduced to it mm, to, to bites, no sort of yeah. contingent factors it really when it comes to misinformation the masters of, of this when it comes to climate change have, have been the fossil fuel industry and i know that a lot of listeners may already be familiar with some some journalists uh amy westervelt a journalist in the u.s has done some really brilliant work exposing this over the years the scientists uh, who worked for various oil and gas companies who were sort of warning who were kind of producing mm-hmm. this research about climate change in the 60s and 70s and were, were kind of aware of this you know well well before the, the the problem of climate change was in the popular sort of consciousness so i think that it helps to sort of talk about why scientists and academics aren't sometimes the best spokespeople or communicators for for what for their for for, for what's happening but at the same time 
I think it's only fair to say that they've been up against a, a really sort of um, insidious and well-funded effort to, to muddy the waters when it comes to yeah, climate yeah, change yeah. and to make misinformation almost seem like seem reasonable seem reasonable but that's yeah. all that's the, the the kind of art the dark art of misinformation yeah. i guess is is to make it seem perfectly reasonable and and all so the isn't it, it so frustrating if we could get those people who can peddle misinformation so incredibly effectively if we could somehow give them the pill so that they're then using all their you know powers for good wouldn't that just be phenomenal <laughs> well exactly i mean it would be wouldn't it i mean i guess it's it's like there's a lot of money in producing misinformation for something like climate change and that's the only i mean off the top of my head that's that's yeah. probably why that their misinformation the misinformation has been allowed to to kind of fester to the extent it has so part of what the conversation does is that it, and i guess that it, it almost sounds like like our mission statement statement a little bit is um our slogan is uh, academic rigor with journalistic flair so the idea is that we want information from the most credible, the most um, trusted experts in the world on particular subjects, we want them to be to be to be the voice that shouts the loudest when it mm. comes to to any subject in the news. We want their we want their expertise and their knowledge to lead the story, but we fully understand that they don't necessarily have the tools on their own or the training to 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 be that and and far from anything else they're also incredibly busy yes uh, and doing jobs, a lot yeah. of really important work that that helps us understand these problems to start with and so the conversation's sort of whole mission is really to 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 help is to is to kind of is to have journalists who work with those academics to kind of let them tell the story let the academics tell the story but to help them find the right words mm. i guess and and it's and it as a strategy we we kind of think it it, it has promise because 59% of consumers on a global scale so not just even in the uk but well over half of, of the consumers polled and um, believed academic experts were the most credible people mm. to speak about you know any chosen subject that they're kind of uh, they have expertise in that was the uh, the work of an organization called the edelman trust barometer who basically analyzed sort of which occupations and professionals and stuff are, mm. are kind of considered most trustworthy but our, our research, research by the conversation showed that um, as far as climate change is concerned, anyway, uh, 67% of consumers in the UK trusted academics as a source of information. Mm. So even though there has been decades of misinformation about climate change that is, you know, from well-funded sources that has helped muddy the waters, people still, with good reason, by a massive majority, believe uh, and, and trust academic researchers as, as the best source of information mm. about it. So that's really quite hopeful, I think. So I guess, you know, how, how can we try and start to spot misinformation and, and how can we counter it? Because what's the name of the, there's a couple of, of bodies that have sort of been popping up, talking, getting on, you know, this net zero debate that, um, and I can't remember for the life of me what they're called, but they sound like they should be on the side of climate change because of the way they've they've named themselves. But actually, they're um, they're like completely arguing the other side. I can't even say it's, you know, it's very easy to sort of, read oh there's the institute of whatever say this and you think oh well they must be they must know what they're talking about and they sound like they want to do the right thing for the planet but actually they're you know yeah pushing the fossil fuel agenda i know exactly what you mean and i think it's the net zero scrutiny group I that's think it <laughs> there's something like yeah 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 which sounds like a really impartial and, and helpful yes, and useful yeah. sort of thing and it's so like I say, it really is insidious how a lot of these things operate because it that the average person would think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do to scrutinize net zero, mm-hmm. and of course it is. We you know, 
but but the fact that it is basically a front from for around 20 Tory MPs and, and peers in the, in the House of Lords, you know, a, a really a tiny fraction of, of, mm-hmm. of our elected uh, elected representatives who actually belong to this group. And they are basically just a front that is supposed to undermine this whole sort of agenda to reach net zero mm. uh, in the Tory party, which more and more, even just this year, they've been cropping up in the news, especially when Boris Johnson's been under pressure with stuff like, you know, the Downing Street parties mm, and that. Mm. They've been able to kind of put pressure on him when he's been sort of particularly exposed or, or weak and stuff. So it is a really kind of worrying trend, I think, in the in the UK and how these sort of powerful groups of, of um, uh, you know, elected people are able to to let their own agenda sort mm. of get in the way of, of what is supposed to be, you know, something that the the government was elected to do which is to deliver on its net zero I, I saw something on twitter saying you know that you know by arguing with the likes of nigel farage or people calling for scrutiny on net zero or for um scrapping of net zero plans by arguing with them are we exposing them to more airtime and you know fueling the fire whereas if we just do we just ignore them and and you know shut them down and and not even engage i don't it's hard, isn't it? Because they feel like they get a disproportionate amount of airtime um, and coverage for, as you said, 20 MPs. Yeah, I think that this is this is kind of, again, it, I guess it's it's the conversation sort of like analysis of, of, of the media and, and, and news. But like those people quite clearly, none of them are really scientifically mm-hmm. trained. Uh, they don't they're not really experts in any real sense. And so the fact that they have such an outsized influence on the discourse about net zero is a real indictment, I guess, of, of kind of our media, but also our politics. And I think that um, the solution, as we see, it is, is that instead of instead of the, the, this tiny minority of people having far more uh, control and influence over the process, which they don't really understand, but they don't mm-hmm. really care because they just have one sort of outcome in mind, it would be much better if we had people who who were experts in uh, climate change and, and in the, and the consequences of net zero, scrutinizing it, uh, this, the government strategy, and 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 saying whether or not it's you know wh- which aspects of it work or which of it are you know difficult or problematic, mm-hmm. or whatever. And I think I mean that that was what we would basically what we commissioned back uh, in last April around Earth Day on that story about the concept of net zero being a dangerous trap. Mm-hmm. Which was these were climate scientists, some of whom were kind of highly influential when it came to sort of the the formation of this idea of net zero by a certain date uh, who were saying that you know it's a useful concept in some ways because we do need to be able to uh, on you know on immediate timescales we do need to be able to sort of articulate how the world intends to, mm-hmm. to get off fossil fuels and to eliminate emissions but because it is so vague and, and because it leaves so much room for manipulation yeah, yeah, and yeah. It, it is inevitably um, quite an unhelpful term at times so I think that like it's important that people understand that that, it, that scrutiny of net zero isn't necessarily forbidden. You know, scrutiny is a good thing. How, how debate and it can, it can be construct, constructive, but um, so often the media uh, gives so much credence to people like the t- Tory net zero scrutiny group mm-hmm. who have absolutely no idea what they're talking about really, and 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 have a pretty you know blatant sort of ulterior motives, I suppose. And I guess there was that thing, wasn't there, for a long time when the BBC. You know, had this requirement for balance. So if we were talking about climate, they they had to get a climate denier to come on for you know alleged balance. And I think they've now scrapped that, haven't they? But I guess yeah. those sorts of things did did quite a lot of damage for a long time. Yeah, exactly. But if we're thinking about you know, so okay, so how do I how do I scrutinise this information that I'm getting? Is it things like you know looking at what publication it's in because that will give you an idea of you know whether it's what its agenda might be. 
thinking about, you know, if there are any uh, sort of groups or organisations involved, well, who's funding them? If there's any studies, where's, who's that been funded by? All that sort of thing. But I mean, that's quite a lot for us to take on when we just want to read an article, isn't it? Or get informed. You know, you're right, it is. And again, I, I kind of, I always hesitate to sort of pile more pressure on people, you know, to do their homework when they just mm-hmm. want to chill out, chill out after yeah. a day. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's a lot, it's a lot to put on anyone. You're absolutely right that understanding a good a good kind of media literacy i guess a good understanding of of why certain outlets ha- employ certain writers or or have certain sort of editorials on particular subjects and, mm. and why they've you know commissioned people you know what are their links you know this author is you know saying that uh net zero is a bad idea you know who are they who owns the newspaper yeah who owns the newspaper yeah. where does this person get most of their income from this kind of thing these are all important considerations. And I mean, so the, the conversation, um, whenever an author writes from us and, and the author is always like a researcher at a university, they have to disclose in a, this a message appears alongside the story, any sort of relevant sort of funding right, they've received, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, whether they belong to any organizations that might benefit from the article and stuff like that. So we're really, you know, the story we, the stories we publish, they're always pretty forthright about yeah, yeah, yeah. any potential sort of conflicts of interest or, the affiliations that the author has for, for the average reader to try and navigate the news like that and to try and to try and make sure that everything that they they read has the same sort of like level of um of uh sort of transparency about the author and the publication is difficult i think and i, I guess that like i think the only thing that people can really do as individuals is to sort of um take everything they read with a pinch of salt question and everything. try yeah. question everything and and just sort of um just you know arguments from from you know all kinds of backgrounds and perspectives can be compelling and persuasive Mm -hmm. but i guess that it it comes down to why is this person chose to write this now in this publication Mm. and why is their argument um why does it sort of lead the reader inexorably to a certain conclusion that right yeah yeah yeah. what is the author trying to to kind of how is this person trying to influence you and like like i say on an individual level i I don't think there's much people can do other than that but and and, and it's far be it for me to recommend who they should you know follow or listen to and all that but i think um again again something as uh, we try to do as as an organization is to ensure that our authors are all writing about either their research or from people within their 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 discipline and it is the research they're writing about and what the evidence shows and they're also disclosing any relevant affiliations and sort of uh, sources of funding they have and i think that like that's our contribution i guess to 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 that process of making the news more more reliable and and more transparent Mm. so just to quickly do my due diligence before we finish how is the how is the conversation funded then so we basically um we get by with subscriptions from universities so um it's a membership model where um, I think the UK has over 80 university members. So universities pay their subscription to be members of the conversation and any academic researcher at that university, a PhD level or above, is entitled to uh, pitch stories to us, to, to write for us while mm. we would commission them and to sort of work with us to produce articles based on the research they do while a researcher at that university or, you know, research has done in the past and stuff. And so... And that that's it, really. The the conversation is funded by universities and, and academia, basically. Mm, that's a really clever, clever idea, isn't it? You know, a revenue stream. But it's but it's accessible to anybody, isn't it? So you don't have to be at a university to to get access to it and be able to read the articles. You can Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's no paywalls. 
and then that you know I, there never will be but that's that's certainly the kind of the thrust of the conversation yeah, is yeah, that, yeah. Um, our objective is to you know as my, my boss once said is to democratize knowledge mm. that that's really it like a lot of the things academics will do really important information they'll contribute to, to important topics will 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 not be read if it's locked behind you know pay, yes. journal, paywall journals and stuff like that and so our job is to help unlock that knowledge and to sort of ensure as many people as possible can read it amazing so um final question and probably the hardest one can you remember your socials if people want to come and follow on social media yeah, yeah. So the conversation, we have a few different editions. Uh, so there's the, it'll be at the, con- I'm just, <laughs> just <looking at> <laughs> quickly check. <laughs> I told you this would be the hardest question. Uh, the, right. So yeah, there are, there are a few different editions. So the, the UK's uh, account is just at conversation UK. Brilliant. And obviously I work at the UK edition. So that's kind of the one where most yeah. of the uh, I work on will be shared but um, the, the the Australian edition which is which was where the conversation began in Australia is at conversation uh, edu like the start of education oh yes yeah 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 and then it's the yeah there's like at conversation us and uh, tc underscore africa for um for oh, our, yeah, our edition yeah, yeah. which is based out in Nairobi and the main website is that the conversation.com or something helpful like that that's right yeah so Brilliant. if you just just google the conversation i mean yeah it's yep. the conversation.com my my um if you want to follow me i don't i would i don't really use it very much so i just share stuff that we've published but yes. uh the my my username is at j underscore e underscore marley brilliant i'll post all those links in the in the show notes so people can come and can follow and can go and check out and the articles that we sort of referenced during during our chat i'll i'll find the links and, and people can go and have a look at those it's absolutely fascinating. I could chat to you for ages about this and, you know, it, the, the role of the media and um, misinformation and climate communication and all those kinds of things. It's absolutely fascinating. But thank you so much. No, thank you. Thanks for giving me the chance just to blather on for ages. I've really enjoyed it. But yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. ish you wonderful sack of loveliness with me jen gale hopefully we've fired some neurons and we've got the old gray matter thinking about what changes you can make in your life this week to live that little bit more sustainably do let me know what that is i love to hear about the changes that people are making big or small every single one counts if you've enjoyed the show and i hope you have do hop over to iTunes to leave a comment or a review and then the bots at iTunes will cotton on to just how awesome it is and it will show up in more people's feeds. Or at least I think that's how it works. Thanks so much for listening. I will catch you next time. Bye.